the vortex, I am amazed by the special aid of God, the very special graces and how his presence is now more immediately felt when discouragement comes to make our souls smaller. Welcome to the seventh episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to remember that the presence of God is with us more than ever when our souls feel small. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, an anonymous email I received in response to our conversation from the last episode about Steve and his mother who struggles with borderline personality disorder. Quote, I just listened to the latest SDP and while I really appreciated most of it, I had a few concerns. As somebody who was diagnosed with BPD six years ago, I found myself losing a bit of hope when you talked about a listener's mother. I recognize that you weren't attacking me nor anybody else with BPD, but were providing hope and consolation to somebody who was suffering. That being said, I have known three other people with BPD, one who has cut off everybody in her life, one who is constantly in mental health facilities, and one who recently ended their life, and I know how damaging this illness can be to the people around me. Let's start by praying together for this listener and the three people she mentions, most especially the soul of the beloved brother or sister who ended their life. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I appreciate this email so much because it has helped me realize something about this podcast. As a therapist, I'm so used to sitting in a room and speaking to one person in private. In those situations, I work hard to give people the unconditional positive regard they deserve. And I do that in part by often taking their side on things as a way of joining with them and then working with them from that starting point on moving forward. This email has helped me realize and remember that this podcast is not just a one-on-one conversation with someone who has therapy-related questions, questions about their life, their relationships, their suffering, but rather an opportunity to address these topics in front of a larger audience. And I realized that the way I took Steve's side and pointed out how damaging the effects of his mother's actions toward him and his family was discouraging to this listener that emailed and surely many others as well. So for that, I'm absolutely sorry. Let me take a quick moment to address a side of the situation that was absent in my attempt to help Steve with his circumstance. Personality disorders and borderline personality disorder in particular have become some of the most stigmatized diagnoses in the mental health world, and that's a shame. Let me be absolutely clear here. Every single one of us operates with some level of an unhealthy personality, an unhealthy way of being in relation to others. And yet I truly believe in my heart that there is hope for all of us to learn how to interact in a healthier manner. And again, I want to be absolutely clear. The hard work of improving relationships should not and cannot be one-sided. Simply because someone's been diagnosed with a personality disorder does not mean that they are the only one who has to make an effort to improve communication, ways of connecting, ways of acting, etc. Everyone who loves someone with a personality disorder also has to do the hard work of learning how to be better in relationships. 
That's precisely because personality disorders don't arise out of nowhere. They develop over time because an individual has faced unhealthy and difficult relationships. Someone learning to cope with a personality disorder is not to blame for developing that way of being, is not responsible to do all the work of making relationships healthier. And no one, including therapists, family members, or people in our church has any right to make them feel less than because they've been labeled, because they struggle at any given time, or even because they've harmed others in their relationships. Again, no one who is suffering from mental health concerns chooses to suffer. No one wants to hurt others, and we have to remember that. Lastly, I want to make clear, there is always hope for those wanting to work on their relationships and ways of being in relation to others. It's hard work. That's most definitely true, but it's so worth it. Next up, another great anonymous listener, quote, I live with my parents. I've repeatedly asked them to let me find a good therapist, but they really don't want me to. They don't talk about it, but I think maybe they had traumatic experiences with therapists, so they're just trying to protect me. Thank you so much for reaching out with your situation. Let's first say a prayer together for our listener and everyone who wishes they could connect with therapy, but for one reason or another are unable to. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. There are so many reasons why family members, friends, and others who are supposed to support us discourage therapy. It could be because of a bad past experience, because of the stigma associated with getting help, or even because they think therapy is some sort of new age, weird, anti-faith thing. Also, it's worth noting that oftentimes people don't want their kids or loved ones to start therapy because they think that it might drag out family secrets or make the person getting therapy see the rest of the family in an unfavorable light. All of these are unfortunate thoughts about therapy, and while they think they might be helping, loved ones who discourage therapy are actually doing quite a bit of damage. Of course, lots of us have bad experiences in therapy, but that shouldn't mean we put a big X over therapy for every person for the rest of time. We've all had bad experiences at restaurants. I still remember the unfortunate reaction I had to some chili Colorado from Casa Franco in Mission Viejo, California, but I still kept going at least once a week because, I mean, their margaritas were absolutely excellent. The stigma probably one of the biggest reasons people push back against therapy has to be something we speak out against. I feel like I say this nearly every episode, but here goes. Getting help for our mental health isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. I'll keep repeating that until our church and our culture finally wakes up and agrees with me. It's worth noting for all my beloved Catholic sisters and brothers listening that therapy isn't some new age anti-faith mumbo jumbo. Let me demystify it for you. It's literally talking, exploring our thoughts and feelings and looking into how we develop healthier thoughts to drive healthier feelings. That's the gist. There's nothing to fear. Sure, you might get some homework to do in between sessions, but it's good for you. I promise. Lastly, perhaps the most destructive reason people block therapy for their loved ones, the fear that dirty family secrets will come out in the open and the person in therapy will grow to see their family members as their enemy. First of all, the big bad family secrets that you think are hidden so well, everyone knows them already. Everyone sees them. Everyone has them in their own families. And the thing that makes them worse is refusing to talk about them, refusing to bring them into the light. 
Next, therapy isn't about vilifying anyone. Even when someone seems like the so-called bad one in the relationship, therapy is always interested in exploring ways of seeing people as operating with the best of intentions in mind, and then coming at the problem from that perspective. I should probably point out that I'm not including abusers in this best light idea, but I mean people who have uh, made our life difficult or not communicated well in ways that uh, don't include the terror of abuse, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm not talking about them here. I'll keep praying for you and your family that they become more open to your need to reach out for help, that they see mental health issues as important as any other kind of health issue we might face. And I hope to hear from you that you get connected to a great therapist soon and start the great work of moving forward. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to talk about St. Therese of Lisieux. I hope my French pronunciation impressed everyone who said I don't do it well. I don't know how to do it. What can I say about the little flower that hasn't already been said? She's one of the most beloved saints of modern times. Millions of people have devotion to her, and her autobiography, The Story of a Soul, is considered one of the greatest spiritual works of all time. But as I've said many times before, and have justly suffered the ratio each time, I just don't get her. I admit it's me, not her. And I felt pretty stupid when I read Dorothy Day's biography of her and realized the devotion that Dorothy had to the little flower. But I just don't have an attachment to her. I don't know what to tell you guys. That being said, a lot of people asked me to bring her up in this section of the podcast. And as a faithful host, here we go. Let's read an article or part of an article that appeared in the Christian Century where in 2013 John Backman wrote of St. Therese. Scholars have seen in her life the signs of neurosis and severe separation anxiety. The literature doesn't mention bipolar disorder, but that's what the intensity of her emotions, both ecstasy and gloom, remind me of. From the beginning, Therese was exceptionally sensitive. As her mother's letters testify, she exhibited a fear of strangers and did not make friends easily at school. For a period of her youth, she suffered from scrupulosity, a pathological preoccupation with sin in her daily behavior. This echoes obsessive-compulsive disorder. Beneath these traits runs the theme of her emotional life, separation. The devastating losses of several loved ones left her in dire emotional straits. After her sister Pauline, whom Therese considered her second mother, entered the convent, Therese became violently ill. Several causes have been proposed, but it seems reasonable to believe that the pain of loss played a part in overwhelming such a sensitive soul. If anything, St. Therese shows us that our weakness can be the exact thing that God uses in our life to show forth his strength. Our personality, our mental health, our struggle with who we are and how we act in relation to others can be the precise way that God helps us to share our faith, share our journey, and draw people to him. It's incredible when you think about it. And when you look at how God has worked through a cranky French kid who even went into the convent full of complaints about others, you can't help but have a little bit of hope for the rest of us. As always, we like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Oh, little Therese of the child Jesus, please pick for me a rose from the heavenly gardens and send it to me as a message of love. Oh, little flower of Jesus, ask God to grant the favors I now place with confidence in your hands that all who listen to this podcast might see God's grace, power, and love through their weakness and suffering. Saint Therese, help me to always believe as you did in God's great love for me so that I may imitate your little way each day. Amen. 
And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. First up, Jen checks in with this one. I was thinking about the impact of mental illness on relationships, specifically the advice that Catholic speakers and ministers give along the lines of, quote, you have to date yourself or God first, or, quote, make sure you're 100% before dating so you can give 100%, basically saying you shouldn't date if you have esteem, mental, or whatever issues. I feel like it belittles people who struggle with mental issues, some of which may be lifelong. Like, are these people not capable of loving and being in healthy relationships? And what happens if a spouse becomes depressed? during marriage. Oh, I'm picturing my guardian angel holding me back now that Jen has asked my opinion about Catholic speakers who talk about dating, relationships, and the like. I could probably talk for hours on this topic, so thanks, Jen. You've summed up the problem pretty well, and I'll actually share a tweet I recently saw from one of these speakers who will remain nameless that made me throw my phone across the room. Quote, ladies, if you want to find real love, make sure to find your backbone before you find a boyfriend. That's literally a tweet in the year of our Lord 2019, like 10 days ago, actually. And I, I, I don't even really know what it means, but I know that all of this relationship talk from Catholic speakers about being 100% to give 100% or date yourself first or whatever other nonsensical take they decide to post on any given day is confusing at best and harmful at worst. Jen, you know this as well as I do, I'm sure. But here goes my breaking news for the world. All of us are broken. All of us are bad at communicating. All of us bring baggage into every relationship, especially romantic relationships. And guess what? We all need to give and receive love. We all deserve the opportunity to give and receive love. You asked, what happens if a spouse becomes depressed during marriage? I'm here to tell you that your spouse will absolutely become depressed at some point in your marriage, and so will you. And here's the tea, as the kids say. When someone asks me the time in my marriage when I felt most loved by my spouse, the time in my marriage where I felt the most sure that my marriage was worth it, the time in my marriage where I felt more alive than ever, more sure that my marriage was the vehicle by which God wanted me to grow in holiness and find the road to heaven, guess what? It's never the good times. It's never when we're both 100%. It's not the honeymoon or the times when everything is going great, the times when good things happen. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the best times in my marriage were and always will be the worst times in my life. Losing a child, failing at work, feeling depressed, anxious, broken, struggling. I'm not saying these are good things that happen to us. I'm saying these are the moments when love makes all the difference. Okay. I might be getting a little off off track here, Jen. I'm sorry. But let me get back to it before I wrap up by saying, do not wait to be perfect before you get into a relationship. It makes no sense. Here, let me finish up with some self-disclosure. I strayed from my faith in college. Like, I never stopped going to mass, but I drifted from believing the teachings of the church and took it way less seriously than it deserved. When I fell in love with my wife, when we dated, when we got married in the church, mostly because that's just what you do, not in recognition of the sacrament we were undertaking in anyway, honestly, honestly, during all this, I wasn't as close to the faith as I should have been. And my marriage, my family, my relationship with my wife is the exact thing that brought me deeper into my faith. The exact reason I care about being Catholic at all. My relationship saved my soul. And if I would have waited to date until I had the whole Catholic thing, the whole God thing figured out, I would have completely missed out on the lifeline God threw in my incredible and absolutely perfect wife. Whew. 
Next up, Anonymous sent a DM. My mother suffers from mental illness, which she has denied having since I was a child and does not regularly take her medication for. This has negatively affected my brothers and sisters and me, and a number of us have sought therapy, which has truly helped. However, now that I'm an adult and far from home, my relationship with my mom often feels strained. I love her deeply, and I have great compassion for her because of this illness, but I get so frustrated with her. My brother pointed out to me that I want her to be someone she isn't, and he seemed to nail the problem on the head. My question is, how can I better love my mentally ill loved ones, especially when they are so resistant to believing they have an illness? Anonymous, God bless you. You care about and love someone who can be difficult to love at times. And as I've said to others on this podcast before, this is answering one of Christ's most difficult commands. And he's looking on you and smiling at your efforts. And I'm personally in awe of your desire to love your mother better. It's inspiring. So how do we love our mentally ill loved ones, especially when they are so resistant to believing they have an illness? It's a great question that so many of us wrestle with. And I think you're already clued into the first important step. We have to work hard to remember that the behaviors that make it hard for us to love are behaviors caused by the illness and not the person. We have to remember this. We have to work hard to not take personally the issues that come up, even the ones that have caused us pain and suffering, because it is truly the illness doing this and not the person. An example I like to use for families is the experience of a loved one with diabetes who starts to exhibit bizarre behavior because of their blood sugar levels. Just personally, I've been yelled at, challenged to a fight, and heard some terrible things all due to a person's blood sugar, all totally resolved after addressing the issue. In that situation, none of us get mad at the person suffering from diabetes, even if they should have been doing something different to control their symptoms, because we recognize it's the illness taking over and not the person. This obviously connects with how we should see those suffering from mental health symptoms that lead to them acting in a way that hurts our relationship with them. But it isn't easy, especially when it's a parent who has the responsibility to take care of us, show us love. And it's even harder when you want your loved one to get help, but they don't see they have a problem. And so we pray, we continue to love them, and we set up boundaries to help us stay healthy and help keep them from hurting us because they don't want to. And we keep asking if they'd like to get help, keep encouraging them to work on their mental well-being, and keep focusing the call for help as a whole family issue rather than pushing the idea that one person is the problem and everyone else is just fine. I'll be praying for you and your family, both that the help that you all need will come to make life smoother, more joyful, and more what you hope it to be, and that you recognize how good you are doing in the circumstances, and that you're able to take a brief moment to cut yourself some slack and pat yourself on the back every once in a while. Maggie wraps us up with our final question today. How do we know when anxiety and depression is at the point of needing ongoing treatment? How do we navigate having a difficult conversation about mental health with our parents and other loved ones? Excellent question, Maggie. Thank you so much for sending it my way. Most of us deal with excessive anxiety and depressed mood at multiple points in our lives, but most of us don't get help for it. For some of us, it goes away, comes back, goes away, and we can continue functioning almost at our baseline, or at least it doesn't cause too much of an impairment. But for others of us, the depression and anxiety can start to weigh us down and overwhelm us, leading to an impairment in our ability to function. This can be something as simple as forgetting to do things at work or at home because depression makes it too hard for our minds to focus not taking care of our hygiene routine at the normal level because we're just not motivated, sleeping less than usual or sleeping more than usual, or in the case of anxiety, avoiding tasks that we need to do in order to try and keep anxiety away. Not returning a phone call, for example, or not even leaving the house when we need to because just thinking about it starts to lead us to feel anxious or even panicked. So here's my basic rule of thumb for trying to figure out when it's time to reach out for help for our mental health and wellness. 
is the way things are going right now working for us or not? If not, it's time to do something different. And one thing that can help us do something different is reaching out to talk to someone, get a different angle on how things are going, get some fresh ideas on how to approach our situation, or just having someone to unload on once a week all the feelings that we've been keeping inside of us. Of course, we don't always recognize it when things are working. I can think I'm doing just fine, but my wife might feel like I'm coming home grumpy from work every single day, taking out my grumpiness on the kids and her, and it might not be working for my family. This is a hard thing because we all think we have a pretty good understanding of how we're doing, but generally speaking, we don't. We always tend to think we've got everything under control and we know what's best for us, but again, generally speaking, we don't, which is precisely why we have to have people in our lives to help us know when things aren't quite right. We have to find people who we can hear it from and feel comfortable and safe and not judged, and then we have to believe them and adjust, and one way to adjust is to reach out for help. It can be hard being that loved one and trying to know the right thing to say to gently let someone you care about know that you think they need help. And most of us get defensive when someone suggests we aren't doing well. Oh, I've been grumpy lately? Well, let me tell you how you've been acting. You know, we're all guilty of it. But in general, the normal rules of communication apply here. Don't blame use I statements, be willing to approach the need for help from a family unit or couple's perspective rather than making them feel like the identified patient, and be willing to back off and try again later if the conversation gets too heated. And pray, it works, it really works, and God wants more than anything for us to cast everything on him. So let's do it. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Defna. 